Welcome to Psychodrama Podcast. This is your co-host, Katie Gordon. This is Leo Odilla. That it rhymes with quesadilla. I haven't said that in a while, so I need to I needed to put it out there. This is a unique episode. Well, not wholly unique, but one of the few where we don't have a guest on. So That's correct. We are going back to our roots in which we kind of just riff uh, off of each other like two seasoned jazz musicians. <laughs> <laughs> set the bar real high just (laughs) miles davis and john coltrane here people no no big deal get ready to be dazzled today we're gonna talk about an article that we both thought was really interesting this paper came out by brian earp jonathan lewis carl hart and the bioethicists and allied professionals for drug policy reform called racial justice requires ending the war on drugs this is a topic that you as you said we we've talked about doing it from the beginning and it's it's also pretty personal for me or you know i guess yeah personal but it's a particularly salient for me because as the listeners may may have heard in previous episodes i've mentioned that uh, i was born and raised in colombia and i moved to the us in part because i did at, at the height of the drug war not that i not that i recommend narcos as a documentary of any sort but about this period but for um, you know listeners who may not be as aware but uh, i guess that will give you an idea but yeah it was it was during that time that my family moved to the u.s because it was uh, very just difficult to be um whatever we had the opportunity but uh the, the the height of the drug war led to thousands of people literally thousands of people dying most well this part of the years but also on a daily basis there was uh, attacks on the government and um, just going back and forth between uh, the government and drug, uh, well, narco guerrillas, which are, you know, Marxist guerrillas, but they were essentially funneling money from the drug trade onto in order to maintain the, the drug, the war. And uh, it uh, those times really, you know, the repercussions of that war, that worldwide war, has really shaped uh, the social politics of basically a good chunk of the world for the past say half century now wow yeah at least so uh the fact that uh, we are actually moving in this direction is interesting and uh, here in oregon this last uh, electoral season we have finally decriminalized all drugs it started it was interesting because we've had cannabis legal for a, a few years a few, um and then there was a couple of uh, ballots that were Put in about decriminalizing psilocybin for um, medicinal purposes and then all of a sudden another one decriminalizing all drugs snuck in and snowballed and next thing you know uh, are decrim- drugs are decriminalized in, in in oregon so it's it's interesting to see kind of this the slow evolution of uh, of these ideas and as they're coming into practice and it'll be just to see what happens so i'm excited to talk about this article because obviously it's fairly controversial still Absolutely. And I appreciate you giving that context and background to it. One thing that has shaped my views is just working as a therapist and knowing people who have struggled with substance use problems and seeing how different, how hard it is sometimes for them to seek treatment and seeing how they can be caught up in a more punitive model involving the legal system versus a more um, healthcare model where it's easy to access high quality treatment. It's been very difficult to see people who are struggling and want help and are afraid to seek it because they're afraid of legal repercussions or whose lives have, lives have gone off track because 
of um, running into the legal system. And so I think that that's really informed my views about this as well. For sure. Yeah, definitely. I would say that part of the reason that I was became interested in substance use research is because I was interested in helping people who have substance use disorders and what can we do about it? And it very quickly becomes evident that even if you have treatments or try to put people out to work, the the whole the system at large is geared towards punishment and criminalization of what we consider a psychological disorder, right? So that that would be like criminalizing, and you know, if you want to be super radical about it, um, the criminalizing uh, suicidal behavior when in some cases that it existed in, in some penal codes that people would be criminalized for having attempted suicide, for example, so or criminalizing depression. So it's it's been interesting to see the, the movement forward and especially this past uh, year as the the focus has increased on Black Lives Matter, in particular the Breonna Taylor uh, case, which the article that we that, that we're targeting this week um, mentions, and it, it certainly is one that comes to my mind as well to see uh, how a complete innocent bystander, right? Because that's also the other part that we kind of forget about in the drug war. I certainly was aware of it growing up in Colombia that a complete innocent bystander would be caught up caught up in the middle of um, of interest between drug cartels and the government are trying to um, suppress the drug trade, but also everyday citizens here in the U.S. and across the world that get caught in um, botched raids or accused falsely or have a relative who, I, we saw this in, in women's prison in Tallahassee, I did a project there, and uh, the amount of women who were sent to prison because their partners were dealing drugs from their house. And then they would accuse the woman of being involved in trafficking, even though she doesn't necessarily was in there. They would take the home away, the kids, and just ruin everybody's lives. So, yeah, it's 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 a huge issue. And right now, this particular paper, I know people have put forth some fairly straightforward guidance into how this might be accomplished. In the article, they, they talk about Brianna Taylor as an example of a, a larger pattern of the heartbreak that can take place. She was a 26-year-old black woman shot by police in her Louisville apartment after her home was entered by officers without warning as part of a drug-related search. And a lot of people no, were just... Completely. Yeah, it were just the completely injustice the of were it. looking for was already in custody. Yeah, it was, it was, I mean, as wrong as wrong things go. And it, it's just... So part of what what is argued here in the article is that they talk about that this is reflective of a larger pattern of particularly black people in the U.S. being disproportionately targeted, arrested, and incarcerated for drug use. And then they also talk about how black and Latino men in particular more often face arrest, prosecution, conviction, and when convicted, greater penalties for drugs. And so what they argue is that the way to achieve racial justice is is not about trying to eliminate some of the discrimination involved and make things mm-hmm. fair across mm-hmm. people, but rather get rid of criminalizing drugs altogether. And is that, right. do you think that's a radical point of view? Is that a new point of view, do you think, Leo? Uh, you know, I, well, I think the authors actually talked about it as well. They said that, you know, that for sure it's not necessarily a new point of view. Um, and I think that people who have been in, in more radical Certain, when I think about it in a historical perspective from the 60s and 70s, that's definitely more people were moving. And before drugs were illegal, made illegal, right? So there were things like MDMA, um, 
or, you know, ecstasy and mushrooms and stuff that were highly experimented with and LSD certainly, uh, during the 1960s, uh, and for the, uh, the counterculture and they were not made illegal, but until perhaps kind of Richard Nixon's reactionary policies against the counterculture that was and the youth counterculture at the time that all of a sudden just lumped all these other drugs without any research into their dangerousness or the, the possibility of them being uh, therapeutic in any way uh, created this repression, this repressive um, environment against them. So I think that there's always been this current to saying that, you know, we should not, um, that, that they should be legal and they should be explored as part of kind of the part of the, the human pharmacopoeia, I guess, if you want to put it that way. Uh, but so I think it's always been there. And then there's always been the concern that there's um, a, a, a degree of racism that uh, underlies the, the criminalization of these drugs or certain types of drugs. Uh, and they talk in the article about, um, you know, the opium dance and how it was tied, the criminalization of opium tied to uh, anti-Chinese sentiment in the early 20th century in the U.S. So I don't know. I think it's been it's been there. It's just uh, the wax and wings on how powerful uh, the voices are. And, and this is probably as powerful as, as the voices for criminalization have been probably in the last 10 years. I'm really glad that you brought up that point, because I think one of the strengths of the paper is that they say that the the racial injustice aspects are not just unintended consequences of the so-called war on drugs, that in fact, a lot of legislation underlying some of this stuff is explicitly racist. You mentioned like the Chinese opium dens, but also anti-Mexican sentiment with regard to marijuana laws. So I think that sometimes that's an underappreciated part of history, that some of the laws are actually driven by racism and, and driven by discrimination and therefore it's not surprising that there are um, unjust outcomes given that that's what's driving some of the legislation policies in the first place that's right that's right there's there's certainly there's a there's a book called uh, i believe chasing the scream and i the author is escaping me right now uh but essentially he does a pretty good job of looking at the historical context of the drug war starting from the 1910s and 1920s uh, and how a lot of it was laced in essentially white supremacy is basically the argument. And I would say it's well cemented that, um, uh, and he actually does a pretty good job of following Billie Holiday's song. So the j- um, jazz singer who, uh, she had a substance use disorder problem with opioids. But, uh, anytime that she had any attempt at trying to get help or recovery, um, she was essentially hounded by, um, at the time, you know, the, 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 the predecessor to the DEA and FBI agents until basically her death. And that exemplifies how, um, this has, you know, the, the, the use of, um, racist imagery, you know, against certain ethnic groups and the use of drugs, you know, putting together, you know, marrying together the imagery of people who may be black or brown and drug use and the threat that they presented to, the young white people uh, population and how it must be stamped. Um, then it's followed by very repressive um, criminalization of uh, of drugs that, by and large, over punished uh, people of color and uh, to a large degree also as well. I would say uh, poor people just in general, basically. But yeah, they're definitely communities of color. 
And I like in this paper how they talk about very specific recommendations. They talk about the immediate decriminalization of so-called recreational drugs, but they also talk about ultimately finding appropriate legal regulation, and they talk about how they believe there should be policies that are evidence-based, scientifically informed, public health perspective about regulating different drugs depending on their particular risk profile. So, for example, there might be different considerations thinking about heroin versus marijuana versus some other types of drugs. And then they also, another main thing that they talk about is having anyone who currently has a criminal conviction for nonviolent offenses pertaining to having small quantities of drugs, that that those are removed from their record and that those individuals are released. They talk about the Portugal model, mm-hmm. and that's oh, something yeah. that you have brought up before. Do you mind saying some more about the Portugal model? Sure. First, I would say that Portugal is an awesome place. Please go visit. It's amazing. I love it. Uh, so let's get that out of the way. I've never been there. I really want to awesome. go. It's awesome. Really, it's one of my favorite places in the it world. It looks beautiful. It's beautiful. And the food so looks very good too. Oh my god, yes, especially the octopus. Although I know you're a vegetarian, so probably not the octopus, uh, but everything else is very, very good. Well, but yeah, sometimes it, I'm more lenient depending on if if it means missing out on things that oh, are important to the yes, to the full Portugal to the experience. experience. I think I, I would could say make definitely have a, a little, a little, a little technical. I feel very bad because they're such smart animals, but they're so delicious. <laughs> no, their, the, own, their own extinction for being so tasty <laughs> now the fermented shark you mentioned in iceland mm. i might not bend my vegetarian rules for that just <laughs> you would, you're not it's different for, for although in florida i did eat alligator before alligator. before i was vegetarian yeah and so anyway so that yeah, sorry out of the way. before we go off into <laughs> out of the various it's, animals i ate before becoming yeah. vegetarian <laughs> It's really interesting because uh, Portugal has taken a very different approach from many other places, and it, I, I, I don't, I cannot really explain why might be the, the the social historical forces that would push Portugal in that direction, whereas another place like Spain, right next door, does not has not really caught on in that area. But Portugal engaged in this experiment, and um, they decriminalized all drugs, and then they moved all resources. Uh, for interdiction and for um, policing and criminalization of drugs to um, treatment resources, basically, essential prevention and treatment resources. And what they have found, the experience in Portugal, and there are several papers that have been published on this and public health policy and a lot of uh, journals that are dedicated to this area, pushing forth the, uh, the idea that while uh, Portugal has uh, pursued a decriminalization model, they have not seen a corresponding high increase in dependency and or substance use dependency or substance use uh, problematic substance use rates uh, in Portugal. In, in fact, they kind of remain stable, and then the the number of people who have negative per, um, repercussions towards it has decreased significantly. And I, I will say that yeah, it's uh, it's it's interesting, and uh, they certainly have you know other other challenges going on. But in that area, um, the authors of the article, and I certainly probably would agree, that um, channeling, moving away money from what we spend, the, you know, the billions of dollars that we spend on uh, the DEA and interdiction and trying to uh, stop or, you know, 
one of the things that's troublesome is the amount of money that we spend sending armed forces literally to other countries in order to try to stop uh, the cultivation of these crops, often using uh, pesticides that are very harmful to both the environment and the communities around them, uh, is super counterproductive. And we should not pursue that. And rather, as the authors argue, is create, you know, there's already a market for it. And what we're doing is um, regulating it, basically, right? So yeah, yeah, Portugal has experienced uh, 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 you know the beneficial effects of decriminalization, and that's what they're recommending. And what you said is huge, right? The whole idea of the war on drugs and prohibition is the idea that it's going to prevent people mm-hmm. from suffering problems. At least that's the rationale given. And so it's a huge deal to say we're going to decriminalize and then not see drug problems increase, not only see that, but actually see decreases in mm-hmm. issues. I mean, that's that kind of pokes a hole in the whole idea in the in the first place. Yeah, and I, I have to say I, I probably, um, I think they had a, like an in, a small increase for a couple of years, but then it just kind of leveled off and went down. But I think what I would say for people who would have those, I mean, we in, in the future episodes, we'd like to have maybe somebody who can talk more about the other side, um, because I, I think it would be perhaps, and we can actually see it here in the U.S. with the case of marijuana. So the the, the states that have legalized it don't seem to have a huge increase. So there is actually increases uh, in the number of people who start using marijuana. But then Colorado, for example, there's some interesting data showing that the number of DUIs has decreased. Um, and some people have suggested that perhaps people are engaging in more harm reduction rather than using alcohol. They switch over to marijuana and there's less um, less cases in which the persons are engaging in uh, driving under influence. And many people have made the cogent argument that um, alcohol is a far more dangerous drug than many other the illicit substances that are currently on the market. So certainly, you know, hallucinogens and stuff like that. So why not open open uh, a market for it while regulating a little bit more closely the ones that are arguably more harmful or equally harmful as alcohol, like uh, methamphetamines and, and heroin? And I would say that is probably a pretty radical, for most people, a very radical concept, the idea that drugs that are, you know, objectively dangerous, objectively not great for you would be legalized and regulated and taxed, for example. But uh, for those of us who buy this argument, um, the fact that alcohol is legal and taxed and regulated is a perfect place to point at and say, well, it works. It, you know, it's not, you know, you can either prohibit it like we did in the 1920s and then have a criminal organized crime thrive. And it's exactly the same parallel that we're seeing right now with um, the criminalization of other drugs, that we just have a thriving black market, but the market remains. I'm really glad you you clarified that. It's not uh, it's not as simple as saying that removing the prohibition lowers use or changes the use or increases use. It sounds like instead what we see are some gains in terms of the way that people tend to use, perhaps. Right. And what we don't see is maybe what might have been predicted, which is like just skyrocketing drug use. Right. 
Right. And, and that's what I would say. It was like, look, if, if the drug and wars was working, then we wouldn't be seeing the absolute, the, the, the problems that we're having. We're currently, so amphetamines and opioid um, use has been increasing and likely the fact that there's uh, efforts and including by it, this is perhaps part of the, one of the things that is not talked about in the, in the, uh, in the article, but kind of that I, it, it's, I get on a soapbox about is pharmaceutical companies, you know, perfectly legal pharmaceutical companies that, uh, the data and the evidence would say from multiple cases against them that they have engaged in a process and a systematic attempt to increase the number of, uh, prescription opiates, uh, for the population that have resulted in an increased number of people who now have a dependency to opioids. Um, that is, uh, that, that already exists. So if, if the, if the drug, if the drug war was working, then it would have been, you know, we would see results. In fact, we haven't seen that. And what we have seen is uh, a criminalization of people rather than a behavior, I guess. And, and it hasn't really affected, um, the change. There's, there's very few positive things to point to it. Um, basically, you know, the, in the PV way of saying it's like, you know, the drug war is over and the drugs won. Well said, right? It's even, it's time to use a different approach. We're clearly still experiencing a number of problems. And that's a good point about the pharmaceutical companies that the way that the system is currently set up doesn't, it's not actually saying, okay, this is what we know about the science of addiction and substance use. And um, this is how we can best help people when they're struggling. Yeah, when uh, so I was looking at the, one of the quotes that I liked is like, drugs currently deemed to be illicit should be legally regulated like other drugs in the U.S. and the Anglosphere in general, such as alcohol, nicotine, and prescription medications. Uh, and then there's a footnote to that saying that criminal penalties could still apply to certain activities, of course, such as the unlawful sale or manufacture of certain drugs, even under a legalized system. Um, so it's essentially the same thing, right? So if you were manufacturing uh, moonshine and selling it and you know blinding a bunch of people, then yeah, we're, we're still going to have penalties against that but we're not going to try to make you know companies that um, make alcohol illegal in a way that is considered safe or up to standard and yeah it is it is interesting to think about to me to think about the the i don't see much of a difference between and this is perhaps radical between the entrepreneurial spirit that built uh johnson and johnson and all the other pharmaceutical drugs companies that are pushing various pharmaceuticals for various reasons and uh, the, the entrepreneurial spirit of people who are trying to bring to market drugs that are incredibly profitable. It's just that um, because it's illegal, only those people who are particularly entrepreneurial and very willing to take very serious risks are engaging in the, in the trade and uh, to everybody's peril, basically. Yeah, I, I I probably am a little bit of a pie in the sky guy. When it, I, I, that's why perhaps we'd like to have somebody who has some data showing some of the the other side because I, I think that uh, oftentimes I get in my in my head I go like if we just decriminalize drugs we would not have people having to cross the um, the border illegally because then we would be creating jobs in Central America that would maintain that they don't have to leave their homes because there's not a drug where they have to feel that that we have fueled and then the inner cities would. Uh, experience a renaissance, blah, blah, blah. So I don't know. Clearly, I'm probably wrong about it. I don't know. But maybe you will. I don't know. Well, I think, I think oh, no. that's... 
<laughs> That's a good point. Like we have the Portugal model, I think is is great, but we also know that yeah. there may be particular aspects relevant to American culture that we don't know how it would turn out here. So you phrase it as an experiment, and I think that's a really good good way to put it. And also, to be clear, we're talking about taking a health approach. I have seen many people negatively impacted by their own substance use and people in their lives who have been really negatively impacted. So it's not the same as arguing something like, it's harmless and therefore we should decriminalize it. No, it's just that there are a lot of negative consequences, including reinforcing racism and, and racist outcomes that occur with the current approach that is being used. And what what we both would like, it sounds like, but correct me if I'm mischaracterizing it, is that that people are, are just seen within a healthcare system mm-hmm. that is functional for them that if they are struggling, they can do that. And also reduction of harm because and acknowledging that people use drugs versus this right. kind of idea that like if they're prohibited legally, people just aren't going to use them, which I think has always been very unrealistic. That's I think that's that you 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 that's you tied it very well together. I think uh, it's this idea that if we just criminalize something, it'll disappear. Uh, and, you know, we can probably talk about you know, legalized sex work and stuff like that. But for now, regarding to drugs, one of the things that I I will say, having been to Portugal a couple of times and kind of hung out, and it was into, I had I, I I was looking through my journal that I was writing at the time, and one of the things that I was struck by, I, I kept say, I wrote a, an entry called um, what was it? Uh, oh God, let's see. And now I got myself under pressure revealing about my diary. Dear diary, hee hee, what a great time in Portugal. <laughs> <laughs> no <laughs> but it was something uh like oh yeah it was it was um open carry beers not arms and i was i was struck as i was walking we were in, in this very lovely kind of small uh, coast town uh, called Peniche, and we were walking we we're gonna go to a bar um to go grab some drinks and catch the sunset and just after a good day of kind of hanging out in the ocean surfing and as so we're walking with my friends, and you know, it's a, it's a multinational group of people, so mostly Europeans, but a couple of Americans and Canadians. And as we're walking, we're like, we're walking, we're hanging out, having a great time. It's the sunset, it's a, it's a good vibe. And we're all walking around with beers in our hands to go to the bar. And it just hit me for a second. I'm like, and I talked, I had to say it, I, I don't remember to my Swiss friends, I was like, you know, you can't do this in the US. Like, we cannot walk around with a damn beer in our hands because you could probably get arrested. It's a problem. However, Walking in many in many places, walking around with an with a weapon, with a with a weapon that could, you know, a loaded weapon that you could actually harm people very badly, that is allowed, and that is a huge contrast that I saw between the attitudes towards substances, perhaps, and the idea of what's liberty in the U.S. And um, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to make it a Second Amendment argument because that's not what this show is about. But it it was interesting to me that we have this. Um, I don't know, maybe puritanical uh, view of substance use, perhaps, or but it was it was really it really struck me, and then and not surprisingly, it, the fact that it's in walk around here and nobody pats an eye. So yeah, I think we have a more puritanical view of drugs um, and what our ideas of liberty. But it, it is interesting to me, and I don't necessarily know what to make of the fact that we are okay with people carrying around weapons in the open, going into Starbucks. 
um, or I don't know. It does, to me, this seems a little unnecessary, but we criminalize walking around with a beer if people just want to have a beer, unless it's in a, in a setting that is tightly, you know, certainly fairly regulated or uh, like a special location like Mardi Gras or something like that. But that you cannot just walk around with a beer from one place to another. It, it seemed, yeah, it, it was, and I didn't know what to do about this, this, this kind of paradox. Certainly, that's the case in many places in Europe. People can just walk around with beers, and it's not somebody bats an eye. I think that's a great point. That's why it's, I, I like that in the paper they recommend as a first step to criminalizing, but then point out that mm. this is going to have to be. A process of evaluating what works and one thing right. they specifically talk about which is on in the main theme of the paper is that re- regardless of what the policy is that there needs to be an impact statement in terms um, a differential impact based on ethnic and racial groups because of the history and so I think the points you're making are a good one our culture is different every every country has its own mm. culture and so we can't, it's not as simple as taking something that may have helped somewhere else and applying it, but rather it's a process once we've decided on the values, which may be harm reduction, um, a health, a public health approach, and, and all of those types of things. There is movement in the country, right, of decriminalizing, especially mm. marijuana. And so it's possible for these things to change, too, over time, it seems like. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely, yeah, absolutely. And the current Biden administration word around the campfire is that they will be pursuing the decriminalization of marijuana across in the federal level. And that would be, that would be a pretty big step. Um, other people, I guess, you know, if I was to think about, I certainly think in thinking about my, you know, people that I know of in conservative states, um, I know that they're pretty mystified and slash kind of horrified that uh, Oregon and certainly Portland and on all the stereotypes that apply to uh, my fair city uh, about being a very hyper liberal bastion, which okay, I mean, we did legalize all drugs or decriminalize them. Um, I think that they see it as a, as a gateway to disorder and chaos and, you know, things that they just don't want in their communities, which I have to say, I, I understand. I understand that uh that approach because um i can see how if you don't have more information or if you don't want things to change um or you have not analyzed critically the arguments against it you know it's it's difficult to open your mind to other arguments if you're not allowed to really critically examine them so i think that maybe it'll be problematic and i will say that perhaps uh, some people have described the U.S. as, you know, uh, the state state laws as, you know, democracy, the labs of democracy, right? So different approaches. So if Louisiana wants to not pursue this approach, and that's fine. They're free not to do so. If Oregon wants to do it, then get good for them. And then we will see where we land, you know, 15 years from now, 20 years from now. And in the case of marijuana, you know, the data would see that, you know, the, lab, the, the, the labs of democracy that first started in this path, like Colorado, Washington, and Oregon, the idea is starting to catch on and saying, like, you, you know, the data don't seem to support this idea that somehow everything's going to be problematic. And importantly, uh, you do you are able to fund a lot of um, uh, worthy causes, you know, so education, health, using taxes from, from the revenue. So that's the other thing is we've had people from other states coming in to our states and spending money that we then t- turn around and use that for education or um, health funding. Uh, so. You know, it's a win-win basically. Using you're using what perhaps economists would be happier is to see 
a market that is freer and regulated in some way in order to create, uh, to channel the market, not have the criminalization of consensual behavior among adults, basically. Yeah, and I buy that. I, I would say that I buy that argument kind of if you want to come from a libertarian perspective. Yeah, they touch on that a little bit in the paper, kind of a rights-based mm. argument that is, as long as, obviously it's different if people are driving under the influence and things like that or operating something or doing their job where mm -hmm. they're endangering other people and it makes sense to continue to have prohibition on that, right? That that makes total sense. But the idea that people make their own choices and and there's so there's there are different ways to come at it. One is a more rights based approach like that. And then other ones are the more practical approaches, which is accepting the reality of situations and trying to make the best of it. Like mm -hmm. you said, I've been surprised. So, you know, I live in a more conservative area in the country mm -hmm. and there's there is more openness, I think, even expressed in about marijuana. But I hear what you're saying, that there is always that concern about People are do worry about that gateway argument mm -hmm. that soon it's gonna it's a slippery slope or something. And I think that it makes sense that people hold these views about drugs because for many of us, at least in the US and I in fifth grade, had that the DARE program mm -hmm. to keep kids off of drugs. And so it's mm -hmm. like at, at age ten, a police officer ran it and they come in and so it's already mm. presented very much in within a, a criminalizing framework and then the data unless there's new data on it the last i saw was scott lillianfeld had reviewed and showed that it w did not effectively prevent people from using substances and in fact there was a little bit of an increase for those who had been exposed to dare versus not if you follow up with them and so mm -hmm. there's an example of kind of the idea that if people are warned about it at age 10 that that will prevent them from using drugs or the same with scared straight. If they go to, they go to prison and see right. how bad it can be, then they'll see the punishment ahead and not do it. And we just know that neither of those are, are effective at preventing people from using substances. Right. Yeah. I think it's a good point that we can accept that people's concerns. And I think one of the, as you said, you know, we, we all have internalized some messages. I certainly did regarding uh what could be for marijuana like i when people say you know marijuana is a gateway drug i could easily point out to data suggesting that people who end up doing harder you know quote unquote harder drugs often started with uh marijuana right but then if you use that those very same data then you will often find that the drug that, that a gateway a real gateway drug is nicotine right or for many because alcohol so the the idea that there's this straight pathway into into harder drugs through marijuana data does not bear it out, and I really am I'm very uh, concerned you know well not concerned but I I'm also struck by cases in which I've heard of uh, people and I've seen people like when I was doing my doctoral internship at at Butner I remember one case very vividly. Of a person who, um, and this was essentially born, uh, also verified by his file from uh, from his arrest. The reason he ended up uh, abusing opioids is because he had a work accident and he was prescribed uh, OxyContin. And as we now know, internal documents show that pharmaceutical companies that produce, uh, you know, industrial strength opioids knew that the drugs had a potential for addiction that was much higher than what they. Um, 
promoted, and then the person started using OxyContin uh, in order to palliate pain. Um, he was no longer no longer you know no longer had access to the prescription and started looking for um, opiates in the black market until eventually he ended up breaking into uh, a pharmacy to try to hold it up with a gun. Um, and so that pathway is often not talked about the the, the pathway of coming from uh, quote legal drugs onto perhaps illegal. And I can see how you could use that argument against me, right? They would be like, well, there you go. However, there's no data showing that prohibiting them makes any difference. Rather, if we've had an opportunity to intercept this person at a time in which they were uh, being, they were developing a substance use disorder to opioids and in order to palliate their pain and not criminalize, not further criminalize their, their, their behavior, uh, perhaps we would have saved lots of money by not sending them to prison and maintaining them in the community, receiving uh, treatment specifically designed like medication assisted, assisted treatment for, for opioids. So that's the other thing I, I really think about is the amount of uh, lives that have been ruined and the amount of money that we have spent on uh, a drug war that hasn't really borne its roots. And that was yeah, a lot. That's right on though. I mean, that's the point right there is like you're saying, it, the pathway can start from legal prescriptions. There are other places to intervene. And once you think at all about what substances are legal and which are not, you, you start to really see the idea that it's there are very clear reasons for each and clear rationale fall apart, like we talked about mm-hmm. with alcohol versus marijuana and other substances. It's not as simple as this one's more dangerous and this one's not, and then just sort it that way. Although that is kind of, now I don't remember, I was in fifth grade a long time ago, but that is kind of how D.A.R.E. presents it. When I used to teach um, this in my undergrad abnormal psychology course, and I mentioned some of the data suggesting some people end up being more likely to use some substances if they had the D.A.R.E. program versus not, I asked them why. And they said that they think some people get interested once right. they describe the effects <laughs> of it, which recognizing that is not an immoral thing, but like a human thing makes sense that the idea of people altering their minds through substances has been around for a long period of time versus it making someone immoral or bad. Yeah. And for people who, who write about substances and the use of it, um, there was a book, and I can't remember what it's called either, but essentially just. Uh, talked about that, that the, the idea, not the idea, but the fact that humans have used substances of one type or another in order, in order, in order to alter their substance, their consciousness is as old as humanity itself, right? So, and then different cultures have taken different approaches to it. And it's been really interesting in, in some cases, especially here in, in the West Coast and, uh, and other areas where it, we're kind of coming full circle into which the use of, um, hallucinogens and that that was definitely kind of the impetus for the the impetus for the um proposal for the ballot proposal to decriminalize psilocybin or use it for um for medicinal purposes if you will is that ancient you know many many societies around the world uh have used and indigenous societies still do uh use uh hallucinogens for example as part of religious traditions or uh, religious slash medicinal purposes and, and the way the the drug is used is not necessarily recreationally but as part of a ritual that is that is that that regulates its use now i'm not saying that that's the way it should be but it is interesting that not it's interesting but it's important to highlight that it essentially would we've been trying to outlaw behavior that is part of the human 
experience uh, across the world. So there's that. I, you know, and I guess, do we want to go this way or do we want to go the direction in which, you know, I don't know, Saudi Arabia or other places in which uh, you know, substances altogether are, you know, even alcohol is completely uh, outlawed and, um, you know, whether that's that's a solution that we wouldn't pursue, which I don't think it has worked at all in a society in which other civil liberties are, are at a premium. So it, it's just unworkable here. Absolutely. Is there, I'm trying to think, are there other aspects of the paper that we didn't touch on? Not yet, but I, I, the one thing I would highlight is that uh, another reason that perhaps people would be reluctant to... You know that they have kind of this visceral reaction against decriminalization is that they have as you mentioned they have internalized these messages about it and i will say that some of those messages that have been internalized are perhaps tied to to racist ideologies honestly uh is that i think that they think you know if we legalize drugs and this means that all of a sudden the people you know these groups of people you know mainly black and brown people are going to either come or it's going to be out of control and it's going to ruin my nice uh, community. Um, and I'm going to use, you know, their community, their white community, to put it that way, without realizing that um, in looking at the data, uh, the, 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 the rate of per capita of deaths among white Americans has increased steadily and in great part that can be uh, attributed to sub- increased substance use rates, in particular due to opioids. Um, that are often people who start, as I said, from from legal sources. So breaking, you know, decoupling that that association that many people may have in in more conservative parts of the of the U.S. and smaller towns in America is important. I think it's those are those are difficult messages to to deprogram if you want. And I think uh, Dave Chappelle, we seem to have a, a running. A, a running theme that we almost managed to bring De Chappelle into lots of episodes, <laughs> so I'm going to. But De Chappelle talks about it a, a lot, and I don't remember which one of the Netflix latest episodes, but he's talking about how he, he lives in rural Ohio, right? And so it's a it's a it's a majority white place where he lives. But he talks about he, he's seeing this problem that all of a sudden a lot of white a lot of his white uh, neighbors, if you will are dealing with substance use problems and their rates have increased and desperation and depression and suicide rates associated with it. And that it reminded him a lot of uh, the crisis, uh, the crack epidemic in the 90s. But at the time, uh, it was essentially like, you know, just say, you know, what's wrong with you? Just say no and then criminalize it. But now that it's affecting uh, a large number of white rural population, all of a sudden people are paying attention and it's, oh, this is a health crisis. Um, and and that is a it's an interesting you know, I guess aspect of the the the, the racialized aspect, history of the United States and breaking yeah. from that cycle maybe maybe also integral to it and I think that's also a central part of this argument the, the article is that to a large degree racialized view of drug use are affecting people's reactions to the approach that we take towards it whether we we use health as an approach versus a criminal justice versus uh, as an approach. That's such an excellent point. Who gets compassion and empathy mm-hmm. and who gets it explained as societal factors versus something inherently wrong about them as a person can uh, manifest right. in, in racialized ways as well. And I, I think that's such an important point. And that's where I really do buy this, their argument that that's why the the only way forward to kind of to eliminate 
some of this racial injustice is to just end altogether the the mm. war on drugs because it's yeah. not going to be fairly distributed no matter what. And so the goal, therefore, isn't just to have equal arrests, equal punishment, equal this and that, but right. to get rid of it altogether. And I, I, I buy that argument and I, I say all of that and I still, there's like we talked about as a, as a clinician, just as a person who's known people who have struggled, this is decoupling it from the idea that no harm can ever be called caused by substances. That's just that. In fact, our next episode, we have a special guest and we're going to focus on some of the, the costs and benefits in Mm -hmm. terms of mental health terms. And so that's all true, but there's also something to moving away from thinking about the way things should be or the way you've learned things should be and the way that things are and how to effectively manage it in light of that. Right. Yeah, it's it it's and I, yeah, I would say even within my if I was to be really honest with with myself, I do have, you know, I, it's almost like this uh, conflict between your rational mind or what I think is my rational mind looking at the facts. I'm like, yes, this makes complete sense. And I still have this sense in like, oh, my God, but we, especially here in Portland, I will say we have a pretty large homeless problem, uh, like many you know cities across the United States are experiencing a lot of homelessness that has been worsened by the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, and it is not unusual. I mean, it is not, not only not unusual, but it is fairly common to see uh, needles. I mean, you walk around, you see needles, you know, in, strewn in the streets and you see people doing drugs in the open. And I get it. that's unsightly. Nobody wants to see that. It's 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 a it's a problem. But criminalizing it has not helped it. And so I can see how people who may be coming from a place like Fargo, North Dakota, where you probably are not seeing that very much in the open, would be like, yeah, no, we're not gonna follow that pathway. And uh, at the same time, it's because there's the costs are hit, perhaps are hidden more or better in 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 certain parts, like in Fargo, in which the problems with alcohol or um, prescription opioids. Uh, people may be dying, but they're not in the open, rather to just kind of hidden away. Um, and it's a more rural community. But uh, yeah, it's I, so I certainly do. I, I completely it helps me understand that, that 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 perspective. And I definitely find myself having to, you know, work within my own mind to say, well, OK, well, this is what they're saying. Like, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to make it worse if we can if we just channel the amount of money. That if we spent all the money that we're sending in order to create prisons, put people in jail in order to because of possession, and we were sending all that money towards um, safe, you know, for example, safe injection sites uh, that could reduce the amount of that of people just being and housing too, and housing exactly meeting a basic need of of having a home. Right. So precisely. So housing, mental health systems. It's just that, and right now that is certainly one of the concerns is that. While we have decriminalized um, possession of uh, of all drugs, we we the system just doesn't have the capacity right now. We do not have the capacity to meet uh, the demand for for treatment, you know, for for treatment, for medication assessment treatment, other kind of treatment, and certainly for housing. Like having, we know that having basic needs met will absolutely maximize the, the likelihood that people are going to to do better. Uh, and I, I, I know for a fact that people who may be more in the conservative spectrum are that probably going to bristle even harder at that idea that you're going to give housing to people because they probably would see it as you're rewarding uh, bad behavior, if you will. Yeah, the idea of who's deserving and who's undeserving. Mm-hmm. Right. And mm-hmm. that if someone is is using substances, not looking at the context of it, but kind of that's the natural consequences for what they get versus looking in the other direction that 
if you don't have a home and a safe place to be, you're going to have a lot more stressors that you feel inclined to want to escape. I mean, it happens in all different directions, but you're absolutely right. Some of it comes down to fundamentally thinking about what is, what is the role of government? What are, Mm -hmm. what are, do people have rights to versus what are privileges? And so that's going to certainly vary between people. And that's where I think pulling on the economic arguments and the effectiveness arguments can perhaps make a difference. Yeah, and we're never going to sway. Everybody's opinion. Not everybody's going to be swayed by by those arguments. Um, but it's maybe if you can present enough data and enough experience uh, that people may be changing mind, just like they are changing for marijuana, right? So even places that are very conservative, and I think Mississippi right now, I think they changed. Uh, so they're allowing for medical marijuana, and I think that has been <clears throat> well the the gateway for for the relaxation of um, criminalization of drugs has been the the push among patient advocates uh, and kind of coalition of yeah patient advocates uh, rights patient no patient rights advocates yeah there we go that uh, are arguing for uh, the use of medicinal marijuana so that has opened a lot of minds of people who may think of it as inherently bad seeing how it may be helpful for palliation of pain or for reduction of other symptoms uh, when when their own families are affected by it, that um, that changes in, in the emotional perception regarding a substance may help um, persuade people towards changing their attitude uh, regarding decriminalization. But it's probably going to be a, a, long, a long time coming. I don't know. It's hard to say. I do think that that can also be a compelling argument, some of often sometimes more than data for a lot of people about individual circumstances and people that they've known that have struggled or people Mm. that they know who have struggled with alcohol use, which is perfectly legal and seen the negative effects of that. It's that I can, I think can help to get people to look at things in a different way. And it's interesting, um, like you're saying about Mississippi, right? You said Mississippi, not Missouri, right? Yeah, I think it's Mississippi okay. that they criminalized it. Just uh, the medical marijuana, they approved the bill. And it, I know Virginia did as well. And South Dakota, which right there, so, um, you know, in, in favor of kind of hands-off legislation that they famously wouldn't do any mask mandates or anything like that. Um, they're, they're, South Dakota voted to legalize marijuana, but a judge ruled that it was unconstitutional. So I also oh, think that there's a split between uh, voters and, and politicians following through on the policies as well. And so that right. that's another point that maybe... I feel like I almost we've recited every point from the paper. It's a great <laughs> paper we'll link to. But the the point that they make is in these policies include people with various types of expertise, including those most directly impacted by these policies. So they talk about as as we mentioned, like looking at what is the impact going to be in terms of racial discrimination, but also looking at people who use substances and who have been through these systems and who have had struggled and had problems with dependence and bring them on board when forming these policies so that Mm. they're, they're really informed by those who are are most directly impacted in addition to health professionals and, and other things like that. Yeah, I think so. And yes, Mississippi uh, uh, legalized in 2020 uh, medical use. So there you go. Although it says that possession of small amounts was decriminalized in 1978, which I didn't know, but uh, it doesn't seem like it. But yeah, 
2020. So our listeners can be here the process as we learn new things <laughs> while we're talking, which is really part of our unedited um, inside view of how we learn things. Welcome, welcome to this journey. This journey. Yeah, I, I, I would have to say it's um, from my own perspective. I, I definitely, I, I, I was not a, a decriminalized person, but I certainly was not on board with drug war from a long time ago because I, I can see how counterproductive it was. But I don't know if I was completely on board with the decriminalization um, until probably I don't know a decade ago or so. I was like, you know, this is just not, it's not going to help because it was, it was easy to be like, really, you wanna, you wanna legalize methamphetamines? And I write like, no, that sounds terrible. I, I have seen the ads that say, this is your, you know, the faces of men. I'm like, no, I don't want that. However, um, that is the faces of people who have a substance use disorder who go untreated, who are criminalized for their behavior, who don't, who don't have an opportunity to stop or receive medication that may help them palliate or reduce the harm of the, of those drugs. And, you know, to get back on my soapbox about pharmaceutical companies, and now we're really, and so let's see, let's see the sponsorships that we have lost. We have lost like Purina. We have <laughs> there's, there's other one, other ones, any, but right now we're, we're not going to get Pfizer or AstraZeneca <laughs> or anything. But, uh, but yeah, I, I, I tend to be more, I, this is where I get in my cons- conspiratorial tin hat, tinfoil hat in which I, I think there has been, you know, the data would indicate internal documents and lawsuits that have come out. That uh, pharmaceutical companies engaged in a systematic uh, attempt to increase the amount of prescription drugs that were being made for all sorts of drugs. I mean, this is not just um, psych- you know, psychoactives, but for just all drugs. But in particular, the egregious is that they were doing it for drugs that were literally addictive. And I, I'm concerned in many ways, and we can get into this psychodrama later, uh, about uh, the prescription of amphetamines, right? So people are like, oh, but you want to make meth legal? I'm like, what are you talking about? Ritalin is legal and it's prescribed and people crush it and snort it. So I'm, I'm not so persuaded anymore by the argument that it's, um, it would be dangerous because there is a perfectly legal gateway drug if you want to put it to stimulants. Um, so yeah. I think we might have covered it all, other than kind of so looking at the more clinical practice angle, which we'll look at with our guest on our That's next right. episode. Anything that we missed? Mm, let's see. No, I don't think so. Portugal. Let's see what else we got to go to. No, I don't think so. Conclusions, caveats. Uh, yeah, no, I, I think we'll we try to be as balanced as possible. <laughs> think um but we we're firmly on the decriminalization camp uh so we'll try to get some opposing points of view so we can go ahead and yell at them and and tell them how wrong they are in conclusion i recommend reading it and if you disagree with some of the aspects then you can email us about it yeah email or tweet at us you can tweet at us about it because leo and i were just talking about how much we like Twitter for the fighting <laughs> aspects of it. <laughs> it's, we want antagonism uh, 24-7. If we want our listenership to increase, then we need to get in some high-profile fights. So that's right. That's right. Help if, us if, out. If you, if you are uh, a person who opposes the criminalization of drugs, the decriminalization of drugs, and you have 15,000 or more followers in Twitter, then please tweet at us. Um, we would love to get into an argument with you. <laughs> yes, sure, there will be costs in terms of the number of people who will write new right. things to us, but other people 
might, out of sure curiosity, want to tune into the psychodrama. Tune into the next one. As we say in psychodrama, all attention is good intention. <laughs> That's right.